name. Thank you, Heidi, for praying, praying, praying for me. Praying too. This is the third in the series, The Storm-Tossed Family. And I still have three of these books. If you want them for $8, see me after the service. And I appreciate those uh, who've dug into this, and some of you have, and have been in touch with me about it with questions. And uh, I always, it's always encouraging to me when I know that you're going above and beyond what's happening on Sunday morning and looking at this beyond that for your own life and experience. This morning's message is the church's family. And the, the, the chapter begins with Russell Moore asking the question. He, he gives a little scenario of a woman who's been an atheist but is now found Christ. But she hasn't found a church. And so she's sitting at a coffee shop, looking in at a church, watching the people go on in. And, and the question she's asking herself is, how do I become one of them? Is it possible to become one of them? What would it look like if I was one of them? After almost 15 years of pastoring in this congregation, and about the same number of years consulting with other congregations, what I'm sharing this morning is my understanding of what the scripture is calling the church to be when we think of church as family. And while one of the risks of this message is that it may sound like it's serving my own purposes, I am preaching this message to support every level of leadership in this congregation. From the board to whom I'm accountable as the governing body and elders of the congregation, to the ministers, to the Sunday school teachers, to the worship leaders, to all of us who are given some responsibility in this congregation, including everyone who's taken membership here. But I also am aware, as I have been for a number of years, that what we are doing now and what I am sharing now is not only for us, but it's on behalf of those who will lead later. That the mountains we are lowering and the valleys we are raising in this excavation project are not just for us, but they're for the generations to come. That some of the work we do, they won't have to do. Some of the faithfulness that we have carried out will provide new avenues for them in mission and ministry. And some of you listening this morning will be those leaders. Some of you listening this morning will be those leaders. As we noted last week, the Bible is very realistic about the dysfunction that is present in all families and in all marriages because of the entrance of sin into the world in Eden. In fact, the dysfunction that is present within each one of us. And yet, from the Garden of Eden until that great table that Christ will prepare for us in the coming kingdom, the Bible holds out in front of us the invitation to be part of God's holy and precious family. The invitation to be part of the sacred family, the church. This bride, who John says in Revelation, will come to the final table, that is us, will come to the final table dressed in fine linen, bright and clean, given to us by Christ our groom. I don't know if you were in the Psalm of the Week this week, but it was Psalm 128. And, and I love this Psalm. It's a wonderful picture of a healthy, thriving, fruitful family. I'm going to read from it, uh, guys, Psalm 128. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in front of you in the chair um, in the rack. Psalm 128. This Psalm is a Psalm of a family that is fruitful and thriving. 
But if we think of church as family, this is also a psalm for the church. Psalm 128, what page? 502 in the Bible in front of you, 502. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to Him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing of, for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children peace or shalom or God's reign or God's order be upon Israel. I love the image of this family. Their phones are off. Their television is off. They're sitting together, sharing about their day, laughing together, some evenings crying together. But they are growing and thriving together. Wife and mom is offering life to her family, spiritual life, emotional life, physical life, sharing out of the abundance as one who is loved deeply by her husband. The children are laughing and they're sharing stories and enjoying what mom or dad has prepared for them. It's a picture that I think many of us would want to be part of. But it is also clear from the beginning of this passage that this picture doesn't just show up in our lives. It doesn't just happen. We don't get married and suddenly we find this is our reality. No, the psalmist makes clear that this is the reality for those who fear the Lord and who walk in obedience to him. This is the blessing for the one who fears the Lord. These two words, fear and obey, are clearly prerequisites for this table. That is, if we want this to be our table, it begins with the fear of the Lord and obedience to him. The psalmist could have used other words like love for the Lord or commitment to the Lord or giving our money to the Lord or working really hard for the Lord, but he repeats twice so we don't miss it. The picture of a healthy family and a functional household, church or family, belongs to those who fear the Lord and walk obediently with him. Fear in the scripture is related to obedience. If we fear the Lord, we will obey. We will obey out of our fear. Fear also has to do with submission. We will submit to God and then obey and do his will. The church by and large, as I look at the American church, has watered down this idea of fear to make it almost irrelevant. We replace fear with other words, and other words that have similar meaning but somehow are less fearful. Honoring, respecting, reverence. Somehow these words seem more palatable to us than fear. And yet the scripture over and over again uses the word fear. Because these words, reverence and honor and submission, honor and respect, don't fully capture the idea of fear that is found in both Old and New Testaments. That there is a level of fear that is due our God. Fear that comes from knowing that the good plans he has for us may not be accomplished if we don't obey him. 
Fear of the one who created us and knowing that he has the power to do whatever he wants with our lives. Fear of one who is eternal and we are so fragile and so temporal that he describes us as grass and flowers of the field here today and gone tomorrow. Fear of the one who holds our eternal destiny in his hands. Yes, this God we serve is to be feared. I hope and think that I live with a healthy sense of fear of the three bosses that I have at the college. My dean, my provost, vice president, and the president, plus the board of trustees. Why do I live in fear of their leadership? Because I know that they have the power and authority to call me out, to discipline me, to suspend me, to fire me. If my performance lags, if I violate the commitments that I made when I became an employee, if I fail in my integrity and my morality, they have the right to dismiss me. This week in a meeting with my dean, I found myself challenging her position on a particular issue, and I pushed pretty hard. Leaving the meeting, I felt a little uncomfortable and concerned that I'd pushed her too hard. And so I followed up to make sure that she understood where I was coming from, to ask more clarification about her perspective, and to assure her that at the end of the day, I always submitted to her leadership. Why did I do that? Because I'm just a good guy? Well, I, don't, I, think, I hope that's part of it. But as much as anything, it's because I fear a bit, rightfully so. Because my dean has the power and authority to make decisions about my future. She has an authorization that has come to her from the board of trustees. I have a healthy fear of her authority and I want a healthy relationship with those I work under. Certainly fear was part of what affected my follow-up and reinforcing my honor of her. The passage from Revelation that I just read says that Christ provides linen for his bride. John also records that the bride has made herself ready. It's twofold. Christ provides clean linen for us, but we, the church, are in a process here of making ourselves ready for that final table. In other words, we as the bride of Christ want to be in a place that we are ready and prepared for his coming because he told enough stories to know what, it, what happens to those who are not ready. Those who didn't have their lamps burning. Those who didn't have oil in their lamps. They were left behind. We should indeed fear being left behind. We should fear the one who can leave us and will leave some behind. Because the church is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. It's, 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 a, it's a light showing what the coming kingdom is going to look like. That we will be dressed in clean linen and new clothes that John says represent the righteous acts of the saints. That is, they represent our obedience and our faithfulness. You think about that for a moment, that what we wear is going to be what we do. That there is some connection here between obedience and what we're going to wear on that final day. That the linen is related to the righteous acts of the saints. We should fear that. The church that we are part of this morning is not just a place to hang out. Rather, we are a community that is preparing ourselves. Cleaning up our act. Getting rid of the sin, becoming more like Christ. This is what it means to be family when we join the body of Christ. 
a body that is preparing for that final table with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But some of you might ask, going back to the story that Russell Moore began with, wait a minute, you, you said to us that we are all one of us, that we all belong to us. What you're describing now sounds like you don't accept or we don't accept everyone as they are after all. It sounds like you expect us to work, to clean up our lives, to become different than what we were. And yes, I do, because Christ does. In fact, I've believed this a long time and I've articulated many times. We have a broad funnel of invitation to the church and acceptance of those who come. We identify with their brokenness by saying we are broken too. We accept their dysfunction by saying we are dysfunctional also. We invite them to the foot of the cross of the crucified Christ because we belong there also. But we hold up in front of all of us Psalm 128, a picture of a thriving, healthy, and whole functional family that fears the Lord and walks in obedience to him. That joining this church team means I am committed to the team's values to the church's organization, its culture, its way of doing things, and that I submit to the team's coaching staff. When I went to the first day of Rocksteady Boxing, I was immediately told I was one of them. And I was invited to join the team. But I knew that in joining the team, I was committing to, a conform, I was committing to conform, conforming to their culture, to their expectations. I would not tell my new teammates how to exercise. I would not be telling them that I had a better way. I would not challenge our leader, Brenda, by telling her that I knew better than she, that her ideas were dumb, that in my last exercise class, we did it better than she was doing it. Of course I wouldn't do that. Do you think I would have been permitted to be part of the team had I done those things? Of course not. My friends at Rocksteady Boxing identified me as one of them on that first day, but remaining one of them required that I become one of them. It required that I agreed to join their team on a journey to wholeness. That I do what they do. That I believe what they believe. That I accept their values. That I honor their leaders. That I stay on task and on and on. What would happen by this point if I was not doing those things? I would have been out on my face outside Rocksteady Boxing. And I would have deserved to have been there. Because I would have lost my privileges by violating the team. Being one of the boxers at Rocksteady Boxing doesn't give me the right to do whatever I want to do. Any more than being part of our church or any other organization gives us the right. Or being part of our family gives our children the right to do anything that they want to do. In every group we are part of, Whatever that is, there are some things that could get us removed from being one of the group. And there always should be. That's what it means to fear. Because there are some things that we can choose to do that are destructive and that hurt others and that jeopardize the mission of God. And when we violate God's laws without repentance, we should lose our privilege of being part of God's team. I should. It's as true as for me as for any of us. Russell Moore says this in his chapter... We naturally have a drive to belong. In the church, we belong to one another as brothers and sisters with a common future. This metaphor of being family rocked the early church. 
As the people discovered just what it meant to share the same story, a storyline in the past, an inheritance in the future. It's that eschatological story that we sign up for. They knew that brothers and sisters have an obligation to one another that they do not have to the outside world. That's why the early churches are described as caring for the needy among them financially and holding each other accountable for their sins. We are not isolated in walls of privacy, but we belong to one another. We are a team. We bear one another's burdens because we are family. Folks, there isn't one organization or social system or group that is worth anything that doesn't demand something of its members, something of significance. Meeting their expectations, asking them to conform, to honor the structure, to submit to the leaders, all of these are part of any group that is worth joining. When we joined this team, we made a commitment to honor the values and commitments and leadership of this team. And yet, in the church, and I mean the church broadly, we have by and large left these things go by the wayside. Because in part, I think we, we believe no one will join us. That if the expectations are high, no one will come in. Of all the groups we belong to, I think the church is the one that demands the least, expects the least, and often honors its leaders the least. Why is this the case? First of all, it's the battle we're in. It's the battle we've been talking about for the last several months, that it's the spiritual battle we are in. If Satan can neuter the church, and if he can upset the table that we're around, he also will destroy its future. We should expect that of all communities, the forces of spiritual darkness will be most aligned against the church of Christ. Second, we live in a culture in this country that since the 1950s has become increasingly self-centered. There's lots of data to support this. We are narcissistic, we are individualistic, and we are consumer-oriented. When Peter Eberly was here from Harrisonburg, you may remember he talked about that. People love to come in, but when they rub up against expectations, they also love to go out. The values of our culture have gotten inside of us. They're like the fog around us that we breathe in and they become our values without us even thinking about it and without us even recognizing we simply act out of them. We act out of our self-centeredness. We act out of our individualism. We act out of our narcissism without remembering that this family we're a part of has different expectations. And so this kind of self-centeredness has become part of our theology in this country and part of what we think about church. God is love, but we forget he's to be feared. God is kind, but we forget he judges us. God is patient, but we forget he also demands faithfulness. God accepts us as we are, but we forget that being on his team requires that we change. Christian Smith, and I mentioned him before as an evangelical sociologist, calls the kind of Christianity we've developed in our culture moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It essentially means God created the world and wants us to be happy. God gets involved in my life when I need him, but otherwise not. And everybody goes to heaven. There are five things. God created the world. God wants us to be good. God wants me to be happy. God is there to meet my needs. And good people die. When good people die, they go to heaven. Those are the things Smith says that by and large, as he's studied evangelical churches, that most of us believe without saying it. We may say we believe the Apostles' Creed. We may say we believe a host of other things. But the way we live our lives is this other way. This way that says, I'm at the center of what's happening around here. Given what we've been sharing this morning from the Scripture, 
from Psalm 128, what is missing from moralistic therapeutic deism? There is nothing there about death of the self. There is nothing there about surrender. There is nothing there about submission. There is nothing there about fear. There is nothing there about needing to obey. There is nothing there about others. It's all about me. No sacrifice, no cost, no service, no obedience. Not much at all. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the theological air, folks, that we are breathing in this country. It's the theological air that we are breathing. And if we wonder why so many of our young people are leaving the church, this is a primary culprit. Because why stay in a church that demands so little and offers so little in return? Why stay in a church that demands so little and offers so little in return? Why stay in a church when we can find the same thing in the world around us? Folks, the only way for you and I to resist this cultural fog, this false teaching, the spirit of the age, is to embrace the truth of Psalm 128, that those who fear the Lord will thrive at his table, that those who do what he commands will experience his provision and his presence. My commitment to you as long as I lead is to work against the culture rather than with it. And that will cause discomfort for you, and it will cause discomfort for me because we have become accustomed to the culture. It is inside of us. But we should feel uncomfortable. If we don't hear the word of God and feel discomfort, then we are no longer allowing it to speak to us. It is why I am so committed to the idea of membership in this congregation and that the expectations of members are different than those who are not members. That there is a level of accountability to membership that is biblical. Churches that do not require membership have lost all means of holding one another accountable. And where there is no accountability, there is ultimately very little commitment. I often say that churches that become like the world disappear into the world. They are no more. If you and I as a church are going to remain well into the future, it will require a path different from that of the world and from many churches around us. It will require more of us rather than less of us. It will require that we give more, that we are more accountable to one another, that we submit to those who lead more. Because the history of the church shows that when we do so, the kingdom of God gets more and becomes more. What's that look like in a church? I think it looks like honoring of those who lead. In this congregation, it's the board and the ministers, ultimately, who are leading the mission and the ministry. And ultimately, the board at this church is giving oversight to the entire operation here, and oversight to God's mission and the ministries of the ministry team. This means that the board as a body has tremendous power and God-given authorization. I repeatedly tell our ministers that Heidi and I and all of the ministers are accountable to the board at the end of the day. At the end of the day, I want to ensure you as a congregation that we as ministers submit to their authority and to their discernment. At the same time, I expect that those who work under any of our ministers also submit to their leadership in the very same way. Those teaching Sunday school submit to Bethany's leadership. Those who are deacons submit themselves to Heidi's leadership. Worship leaders to Kate. Sunday school teachers to Josh and Janelle. 
youth leaders to Jess and Andy, mission outreach leaders to Paul. Does this mean we don't ever have disagreements with those who lead? No, we do. But at the end of the day, as I shared with my story of the dean this week, I submit to her leadership. I understand that she has been called and authorized to lead. I walked by a couple of board members recently, and one, in good joking manner, said, we're deciding your future. I stepped back and put my arm around this person and said, I know better than that. I know that God is deciding my future. But if he uses you to do that, that is fine with me. It, was my, it is my way of saying that if the board whom I am accountable to ever asks us to leave, we will receive that as God's voice to us. Because submission frees us. Submission frees us. Submission releases me from having to worry about the future if I ultimately believe that God is the one who has the future. If the board would call us to leave and did so unjustly, my confidence is not in the board, but in a God who sometimes allows injustice, but still has my best interest at hand. I can trust that he will someday vindicate and take care of any injustice in my life. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, and he's, we tend to think of this as relating to the authorities of, 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 our, of our government, but I think we can just as well apply it to the governing body of our congregation, which is the board and those who lead. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling ultimately against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. Or in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who one day must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. When I talk to my students, I'm well aware that we resist submission to others because it seems like a loss of personal freedom and autonomy. But what if, in fact, holy submission is actually the door to greater freedom? Because submission frees me to let someone else be responsible for the problem. Submission frees me to put my energies toward constructive change and projects and activities, trusting that those God has placed over me will make the best decisions. We're in a time of upheaval at the college like I have never seen in 27 years. Faculty were fired this summer. And in, even in light of the faculty firings, a lot of my colleagues have spent the bulk of the fall criticizing the administration rather than finding ways to make sure that their own departments are in good health. I have been comforted in knowing that I believe the administration will make the right decisions. For 27 years, I've had four presidents, and with every one of them, God's grace has flowed, and I've had favor. That's been his grace. I'm not boasting, I'm just trying to illustrate and communicate a point that when we submit, we receive honor. When we submit to those over us, we get honor back. I'm simply trying to communicate 
a central value of mine in leading and how I see the church's family. These values guide my leadership and I expect them of those who lead and are led. Because this kind of table creates, a, creates freedom and joy for those who gather around it. Because as I said, submission brings honor, it brings freedom, and it builds trust. And the result is wealth and prosperity. Because when it all comes down to us folks, this is not ultimately about surrendering to want someone else. It's ultimately about surrendering to God himself and choosing his way. It's about Psalm 28 and fearing God and doing what is righteous. So that at the end of the day, we gather around that table in the final wedding feast of the Lamb, before whom every knee will someday bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, celebrating with one another that we have run the race. Lord Jesus, I commit to you this message this morning. And I pray that you will bear fruit in all of our lives, that we would walk with you, submitting first of all to you and in obedience to you. And that out of that, you would set a table that bears fruit now and long into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.